Welcome to Season 2 of ArcheoEd, a podcast about the ancient civilizations of the Americas. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. For the last 30 years, I've been all over the Americas as an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge. This podcast is just me, freed from the lecture podium and talking with you like we're just having a beer together. Sometimes it'll be very in-depth information about a particular subject. Other times it'll be very general information about a wide subject. Basically, it'll be anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast and I'm just having fun with it. I hope you enjoy it too. And without further ado, let's get started. Season 2, Episode 3, New World Contact Epidemics. This is the biggest, broadest topic I've ever attempted to cover in my podcast. I'm talking now about the entire Americas and the devastating effects that the introduction of European, Asian, and African diseases had on every single civilization there. The topic is frankly nebulous and still passionately debated. The truth is that a lot of the facts may well never come to light. I've been reading books for months trying to better understand this subject before presenting it here in my podcast. At one point, my wife made fun of me on social media by taking a photo of the stack of books on my desk. The titles were things like A Pest in the Land, Born to Die, and Vectors of Death. As I studied the subject, two phrases continually entered my mind. One, a perfect storm. The other, if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did it fall? The perfect storm thought is one that I'll elaborate on throughout this episode, but to briefly sum it up, there were a number of factors happening all at once that made the New World epidemics particularly devastating. First, the people of the Americas had no immunity to European diseases. Europe had centuries of suffering and then eventually surviving multiple epidemics and plagues, but none of those fully disappeared. Instead, herd immunity developed and slowed the spread of things like influenza and smallpox, but they were still there. And when the first dozens and then hundreds of ships carried Europeans to the New World, the diseases hitched a ride to the motherload of fresh victims. Second, Europe in the 16th century still had no idea what an infectious disease was. They were still working with the four humors theory regarding the cause and cure of illness. That was a theory developed by the Greek physician Hipparchus in the 500s BCE. The four humors were blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. Hipparchus, and still most of Europe 2,000 years later, believed that imbalances in these four bodily fluids were what caused all illnesses, including epidemics. That's why bloodletting and potions were such common remedies. It was all about pulling out some of the fluids and increasing others. Bad air, or in Spanish, mal aire, where the word malaria comes from, was another 
big cause that they thought was happening. And they encouraged people to leave where they lived and go somewhere else to evade their illnesses. We now know that that would accelerate the spread of infectious diseases. But the first Europeans in the New World had no clue. Germ theory was still centuries away. A third part of the perfect pandemic storm, and one that is too infrequently factored in, was the native response to the spread of disease. In the Americas, all of it as far as I know, disease was considered a supernatural attack from the spirit world, not a purely biological phenomena as we now understand it to be. When someone fell ill, it was because something was affecting their spirit or soul. When everyone got ill at once, it was the gods, likely mad about a society-wide transgression. Of course, each culture had their own variations. Some were really focused on the witch and healer pair of opposites. Others thought they were living up to the standards of their deceased ancestors. Still others thought they were pleasing or not pleasing their gods. So when absolutely everyone started getting sick and dying, they didn't think it was contact with other humans from Europe. They thought it was a punishment from above. Were their gods and maybe their ancestors punishing them for bad behavior? Or worse, was this one true god that the Spanish kept talking about stronger than their gods and killing the people until they agreed to worship him? That was certainly what the Spanish priests were telling them, and in the priests' defense, they really did believe that. Secular scientists, which were few and far between in 16th century Europe, believed the four humors theory. But the Spanish priests and conquistadors thought like the New World natives, that epidemics were a punishment from God. They wrote things like, And then our Lord saw fit to visit a pestilence upon the natives, and many died. In one tragic account from the Amazon, a priest who was desperate to save the people could not understand why God kept taking them. He did his best to Christianize them, baptizing a reported 10,000 a day, and yet they still died. Can you imagine? That poor fool was wiping the same bowl of infected holy water on face after face, clueless that it was he who was the primary vector. Now, being able to say what happened in the Americas at contact was the worst pandemic that ever happened on planet Earth, and I believe it was, well, it's complicated by a number of factors. First and foremost, a lack of information about the size of population at contact. Just how many people were there? For sure millions, but even today, estimates range wildly. Some, especially the first anthropological ethnographers of the 19th century, like Franz Boas and Alfred Krober, thought that it was pretty low, maybe 10 million tops. Even in the early 20th century, Alice Herlicka of the Smithsonian Institute thought that humans didn't even get to the Americas until about 3,000 years ago. But then some cool old black cowboy named George Majunkin found a projectile point in an extinct bison in New Mexico. But that's another podcast episode. 
For centuries, scholars didn't even consider the role of disease in the downfall of the civilizations of the Americas. They believed what's been called the Black Legend, that the extraordinarily cruel and violent Spanish conquistadors hacked them all down with their swords and worked them to death in the gold mines. The origins of the Black Legend is actually with the Dutch, English, and other European countries. They wanted to make Spain look bad so they could use it as an excuse to take over management of the Americas. But the truth is that there were simply not enough Spaniards in the Americas to have caused as much death as occurred in the first 50 years of contact. I wrote a paper way back in undergraduate college that calculated that even if every Spaniard in the Americas cut down one Indio per minute all day long, they wouldn't have nearly approached the amount of deaths. And while the Spanish were not nice to the natives, neither were any of the other European nations. In fact, Spain was the first European nation to pass laws protecting indigenous people of the Americas. It was called the Law of Burgos, and it was enacted way back in 1512. Apparently, Cortes, Pizarro, and De Soto didn't get that memo. But my point is that the black legend is a disproven myth. It was epidemic diseases that killed everyone, not swords. The real paradigm shift that got scholars thinking about the impact of disease at contact was when Alfred Crosby published his book, The Columbian Exchange, in the 1970s. The Columbian Exchange, which is now a widely accepted perspective, basically says that the really world-changing factors of the discovery of the Americas were mostly biological, not political or cultural. Crosby talks about the exchange of plants, animals, foodstuffs, and especially pathogens as the game-changers. Tons of new staple crops went to Europe, improving their diets and, by proxy, their health. Tons of domesticated farm animals went to the New World, not really improving their diet, but definitely contributing to the spread of disease. Jared Diamond's popular book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, expands upon Crosby's Columbian Exchange theories. Anyway, once scholars realized just how deadly the diseases likely were, then more questions came up. Questions like, what diseases hit the Americas and when? How big was the original population? What was the infection rate? And how many people actually died? And more generally, what was the impact? I'll try to address at least some of those questions in the last part of this episode. When I come back from a brief commercial break, we'll start with the sequence of events as the first waves of disease spread across the Americas. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. 
introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of Black and Brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in Black and Brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. If you like the subject matter of this podcast, and clearly you do because you have to be at least 10 minutes in to hear this commercial, then I suggest you give The Great Courses a try. They're produced by The Teaching Company, a company who started over 30 years ago. They're kind of the OG of the autodidactic learning world. All those other online learning companies are really just copying what they started. They have hundreds of courses, not just individual lectures, but entire courses over every subject you could imagine. I myself have produced a few courses for them. They have this great new website called The Great Courses Plus. There you can stream audio or video all of their courses from any device you choose. Their website is www.greatcoursesplus.com. Check it out today and start your free trial. Okay, I'm back. Let's talk about how epidemic diseases first spread in the Americas. That probably happened at first contact. We all know the rhyme, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Indeed he did, and he made his first landfall in the Caribbean. What's less commonly known is that at about the same time, Portuguese explorers were codfishing on Canada's eastern coastline and exploring the Brazilian coastline. Those were almost certainly some of the disease trees that fell in the woods, but nobody heard them. No one, that is, except millions of immunocompromised natives. We may never know if disease started to spread in those places too, but its malignant effects in the Caribbean were plain for all to see. Columbus's first voyage was just three ships. He sailed along the north coast of Cuba and then managed to wreck the Santa Maria into the island he called Hispaniola, present-day Haiti and Dominican Republic. He left 59 men there to establish a first colony and took a few Taino people with him to display back in Spain. He called them Indios or Indians, because he was sure he had just found a shortcut to the eastern side of the Indies. Of course, we know he didn't have a clue where he was. But nevertheless, his ridiculous misunderstanding stuck on the indigenous peoples of the Americas, who to this day are called Indians. His second voyage started as soon as he could, in 1493, and this time with 17 ships and about 1,200 men. They spread out, encountering many more islands, and noting that each had big populations, villages along every shore. And it was during that second voyage that the reports of disease started coming in. The Spanish were no strangers to epidemics. Europe had suffered bubonic plague, smallpox, influenza, and other contagions for centuries. In fact, Typhus had broken out in Spain just a few years earlier, 
during the final battles to free the country of Arab kingdoms. Many of those same soldiers were on the ships departing Seville for the Caribbean, and of course they had no idea what a carrier or a contagion vector was. The first couple of colonies were moved because they were determined to be bad locations, and that was because everybody was dying. The Spanish were much better at recording who of their ranks were dying, which actually was pretty high. They blamed it on things like malnutrition, exhaustion, bad air, and tropical heat. But they also reported many Indios dying, mostly because it was getting harder and harder to find any to enslave for all the labor they needed. By the time of Columbus's third voyage in 1498, Hundreds of other ships had arrived to the Caribbean colonies and established footholds on many other islands. At first, the diseases that hit were typhus and influenza. The influenza was specifically a swine flu carried by European pigs. But it was only a matter of time before the biggest killer hit, smallpox. By the early 1500s, the immense scale of death was noted by all. Numbers were only guesses, but half or two-thirds of the population were common estimates. By 1505, there were so few natives left that the king of Spain approved the importation of African slaves. That, unfortunately, added yellow fever and malaria to the growing list of new American diseases. It's interesting to note that many Spaniards also died of the Caribbean epidemic diseases. Having lived through the COVID-19 pandemic, or at least so far, it got me wondering about the nature of disease mutations. The Spanish had no idea, but modern medicine understands that when an epidemic disease hits a large, non-resistant population, it mutates into new forms. Were the Spanish dying of the same diseases they brought, which had mutated and then boomeranged back onto them? It's an interesting thought, but it's a little difficult to prove. In any event, the Caribbean became a horrific petri dish for pandemic diseases. A fresh population of New World people were infected with at least five European epidemic diseases, probably more. And as a small clarification here, I do know that most of the world's epidemic diseases originated in Asia and Africa, not Europe. I'm simply noting that they were imported to the Americas from Europe. By the time Cortez landed in Veracruz, Mexico in 1519, disease had already swept through much of Mesoamerica. How did it get there ahead of him? Well, it's really not hard to say. Multiple Spanish contacts in a few colonies had already been established on the coasts of Central and South America. Pirates, who don't keep diaries, were out capturing slaves. And the Caribbean natives themselves had many seaworthy boats capable of reaching the mainland. Cortes first contacted and allied the Tlaxcalans, the sworn enemies of the Aztecs. But even as he arrived, they were dying in mass from an unknown disease. Most of you know the Cortez conquest story. First, he was in good with the Aztec king Montezuma, 
but then they were driven out in the Noche Triste and began a two-year siege of the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan. It was while the Aztecs were holed up in their capital when smallpox really started killing them. They called it, by the way, Wei Sawadl. That means the big rash in Nahuatl. Montezuma's successor died of smallpox just months into his reign. His son died too, so his brother Cuauhtémoc took over as leader. When the conquistadors finally broke through the Aztec defenses, the city was a nightmare. The chronicles say that the streets were full of the rotting dead, with the smallpox visible on their bodies, so many that they had to step over them. One soldier said that there were a hundred thousand bodies, and really, that might be a low estimate. Now, unbeknownst to the Spanish, the disease had also swept like a wildfire all over Central America. When it began is really unknown, but by the time Pedro Alvarado reached the Maya in the highlands of Guatemala, disease was everywhere and the people were panicked. Heck, even when the Spanish first reached Cozumel in 1517, they noted that many were sick and whole towns had been abandoned. Further south, things were really bad, too. The Spanish had been trying to establish colonies in Panama and Colombia since 1502, but when Balboa crossed the Darien and saw the Pacific in 1513, colonization efforts intensified. The colony of Panama City was started in 1519, but they complained that virtually every native had already died and thus requested African slaves. As for the Inca Empire, they were in pandemic chaos before the Spanish even knew they existed. Huanacapac, the Incan emperor, was in the process of conquering the Ecuador region when he contracted smallpox and died probably in 1525. By the time Pizarro captured the new emperor, Atahualpa, in late 1532, untold millions of people died in the Andes Range and into the Amazon. And sadly, this was just the start. Sometime around 1530, measles hit the New World. While it wasn't as deadly as smallpox, its rate of infection or R0, was way worse. The smallpox R0 is 4 to 6, meaning one person can infect 4 to 6 others. Measles R0 is 12 to 18. It's like that game where he told two friends, and he told two friends, and he told two friends, but the number's 18 instead. And just for a moment of modern comparison... COVID-19's R0 is about 1. So to say that things were bad is a gross understatement. They were downright apocalyptic. When we try to evaluate the spread of disease in North America during that same time period, we have virtually no data to go on. The one big clue I know of is the Chronicles of the DeSoto Expedition. In the spring of 1540, he entered the massive kingdom of Kofitikachi in modern-day South Carolina. While raiding the outer villages for corn, DeSoto's men noted that their temples were full of stacks of dead bodies. 
Locals told them that disease had been sweeping across the kingdom so badly that there was no time to bury the dead. Then, while ransacking noble tombs in the capital city, De Soto himself found Spanish equipment. When he asked the queen where it had come from, the queen explained that a group of Spaniards lived on the coast for about a year and then disappeared. That was almost certainly the Ayan colony that had briefly established itself in 1526. But that was 14 years earlier. That's a lot of time for infection to spread. Yet more disturbing to me is that when De Soto asked the queen to give him gold and silver, she sent traders days away to retrieve them. They returned with copper and mica, which really bummed De Soto out. But the closest sources of those materials was around the Great Lakes. Had they known what we now know about infectious diseases, travel restrictions may have been in order at that time. Anyhow, you might have noted that thus far I've avoided the topic of death counts. That's because it's tied to the pre-contact population estimates, which is really a very nebulous topic. I'll take my final commercial break now, but when I return, we'll discuss how we can figure out just how many people died. This break is where commercials should go, but until I find people who'd like to buy the time, I'll just promote what I'm doing. If you like the cultures and places I'm talking about in this podcast, you should consider traveling with my colleagues and I. I'm the director of Maya Exploration Center, a nonprofit dedicated to the better understanding of ancient American civilizations. We do that through things like this podcast, our website, public lectures, and educational travel programs like I just mentioned. If you'd like to find out more about how to get involved, or just give us a donation to continue our work, check us out at www.mayaexploration.org. That's mayaexploration.org. Okay, I'm back. Again, podcast magic. I've actually been gone for a couple days trying to think about how to present this last section. I've been reading, thinking, taking long walks to clear my mind. And that's because the issue of pre-contact New World population is very complicated. And to be perfectly honest, I really didn't get the clarity I sought. Nevertheless, I will forge ahead and we'll talk about it. So estimates run from just 8 million to 200 million people. Probably both of those figures are wrong. But how many people there were here, that's key to estimating the death toll. For one thing, we know that epidemics travel much faster and farther through dense populations than dispersed ones. If, as some believe, large areas of North and South America were uninhabited wilderness at 1492, that has important implications for our population estimates and the speed with which epidemics spread. From my decades of experience as an archaeologist in the Americas, I see ancient populations everywhere. Whether I'm in a city or miles into the jungle, 
it's hard not to find a potsherd or projectile point. Another complicating factor is just when each one of these diseases arrived and to where. The numbers 90 to 95 percent population loss are thrown about, but one might think that's nuts. Even at the top estimates of population decline during the Black Death of Europe in the mid-1300s, you only get to about 60% of the people dying. But that 90-95% to number is not from a single epidemic. It's calculated from repeated waves of epidemics, dozens of them over a period of over 200 years. So it's fair to ask, were any of those epidemic surges the worst one in world history? Or even if smallpox hit Mexico in 1519 and Peru a decade later, was that the same epidemic or two separate events? Then there's the other factor that up until then had never happened before on the planet. Multiple epidemics hitting a virgin population all at once. Each of the previous epidemics hit Europe, Asia, and Africa one at a time. In the course of a single decade, the Americas got hit with three to five of all the worst ones all at once. By at least 1530, typhus, smallpox, measles, bubonic plague, and malaria were raging through the Americas simultaneously. Model that. And then there's the devastating effects of epidemics on the functioning of society. Those were also facts that increased mortality. Measles can kill in a week. Bubonic plague can kill in a day. In short order, no one is there to tend the sick or to feed them. And then when no one is left to grow food, the next epidemic wave will be even worse. Even when it comes to just researching this topic, political agendas come into play. I must admit that when I was first starting out in archaeology, I thought I was joining a group of scientists who put aside our politics in order to search for the truth. Boy, was I wrong about that. When it comes to the debate about pre-Columbian population estimates, the field is mostly separated into two camps, low-enders and high-enders. High-enders favor the high population estimates. And while no one would come out and accuse them of doctoring their data, Instead, we say snarky crap like, I find their methodology unsupportable. But most high-enders conclude their studies by suggesting that the civilizations of the Americas were much more substantial than previously thought, or more aggressively seek to pin the world's worst genocide on Europe. And the low-enders have their own agendas, they tend to conclude that the diseases were not so big a factor because the population was too dispersed for them to have spread very quickly. They also tend to be the same people that view Columbus as a hero and that Europe came just in time to save the indigenous from their depraved barbarity. So, it's a can of worms for sure. And I'll admit, probably to no one's surprise, that I'm a high-ender. I think that the number was at least a hundred million, and probably more. The first explorers were consistently shocked by how many people were there. 
Besides desert locations, they saw big, dense populations everywhere they went. Even the deserts were crawling with nomadic hunters. Cortez went from community to community, always estimating the populations in the hundreds of thousands. The Inca kept good population records with the quipus I discussed in my last podcast, and they estimated their population at about 10 million, and that was only the people currently under Inca management. Even in the 1540s, 50 years after first contact, De Soto described wall-to-wall communities and road systems all across the eastern United States. Even Oriana, who accidentally traveled through the Amazon in the 1540s, reported surprisingly large and sophisticated civilizations there. And when I think about five epidemic diseases and what they could do to a dense population if they hit all at once, it's not hard for me to imagine a severe decline. Here's a stupid oversimplification to illustrate my point. What if a population of 100 people got hit with five epidemic diseases back-to-back, each with an initial mortality rate of 50%? Wave 1, 100 becomes 50. Wave 2, 50 becomes 25. Wave 3, 25 becomes 12. Wave 4, 12 becomes 6. Wave 5, 6 becomes 3 people left. Now... 50% of people dying from each and every epidemic is probably too high. But just five waves of epidemics hitting the Americas is verifiably too low. At least five epidemics hit the Americas in the first two decades of contact. Between 1500 and 1700, there were verifiably dozens. So, Having read many books and sat for months with the subject during my own pandemic quarantine, I'm confident when I estimate that at least 100 million people died in the Americas within the first 50 years of contact. Now, does that make it the worst pandemic in world history by death count? Maybe, but probably not. It really depends on how you look at it. For one thing, it was many different episodes, not just one. But even if we considered it just one, the Black Death could have been 200 million. The Spanish Flu could have been 100 million. Some scholars even say that the plague of Justinian in the 500 CE could have been 100 million. Those are all high estimates, and their low-ender equivalent estimates are fractions of those totals. But that brings me neatly to the final thing I want to discuss in this podcast— the devastating socio-cultural effects of epidemics. Regardless of how many people died, the diversity of our world's cultures took a terrible blow, I think undeniably the worst ever. One of the biggest things to consider was its effect on Native American religions. A major commonality of all New World cultures in the 15th century is that they believed that disease and sickness was a supernatural attack, not a physical origin. So when a bunch of hairy guys landed in ships and told them that they had to submit to their civilization and convert to their religion, and that got coupled with everyone suddenly getting sick, the psychological effect must have been devastating. 
The hairy guys in brown robes told them that they were sick because they were pagans, and the only way to heal was to accept Europe's God. To Native Americans, the fact that everyone got sick at once was proof positive that their gods had either abandoned them, or worse, had been defeated by this new foreign deity. The motivation to abandon their religion and convert to Christianity must have been intense. And ironically, each baptized person got an infected bowl of holy water splashed on their face. The other major thing to consider is that epidemic diseases always hit the oldest and the youngest people in a community the hardest. Most cultures of the Americas were illiterate, which means their entire knowledge base was verbally passed down from elders to the next generation. So when multiple diseases hit all at once without warning, many of the elders died, and many babies died. Can you imagine a moment when a fierce new enemy arrives and just then you lose your grandparents and your children? How about if, from your cultural perspective, it was your deities that judged them unworthy and killed them? How ready would you be to fight off invaders? And remember, you're probably sick too, which meant your gods didn't think much of you either. Imagine how demoralizing that would be. When the elders died, the transmission of cultural knowledge died with them. Even the adults who survived to become the new elders, had considerably less youth to teach, and the next wave of epidemics came and killed them too. Many people probably abandoned their cultures and religions in favor of European ones in a futile attempt to give their surviving kids a fighting chance at life. Even in the few literate American cultures, the chain of knowledge transmission was broken. Within a single generation, the Maya forgot how to read and write in hieroglyphs, and the Inca forgot how to not quipus. Archaeology has found many American cultures that the first European colonists never even saw, but the epidemic surely did. There's that tree falling in the forest again. So, was it the worst pandemic in world history? Purely by death count, we may never know. But in terms of loss of cultures and civilizations, I would say certainly so. Just imagine, what would the world today be like if massive civilizations like the Inca, the Maya, and the Mississippians had survived intact? I'd wager to say that the United States wouldn't exist. But, We'll never know because a herd of epidemic diseases rode across the Americas like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, effectively wiping out 90% of the inhabitants of the entire Western Hemisphere. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support Archeoed through my Patreon account. 
I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.